This is Pastor Danny Baker, my sister's husband. Thank you, Sister Moran, and it's great to be here at, uh, in Springfield with you guys from Thibodeau, Louisiana, uh, and uh, it, we just are having the time of our lives in South Louisiana. Been there almost six years, pastoring that amazing church. And in fact, you know, uh, you know, fivefold ministry. The, the pastor is 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 on this finger if you're if you're illustrating it with a hand, and that's because the pastor's married to the church, and I'm sure Pastor Ron's thinking and praying for you guys right now, but I, we're back there on our phones because we live stream, and so I'm checking out our service, just praying everything goes well and praying for the people, but uh, but hey, it's a, a privilege to be able to introduce Brother Bob. Brother Bob and I graduated from Central Bible College together back in 1996, and you know, the Bible says King, King Saul, and I'm not relating you to King Saul, by the way, but King Saul was a, a, head, a head above the, uh, the, the crowd, a, a head above the, the rest, and and he stuck out, and Brother Bob stuck out in our school because of his knowledge, because of his uh, expertise in so many ways, and his character, the way he walked with God, and, and he was our class president. Was it all four years? Was it last two years? Last two years, and, I, and uh, everyone just knew we were in good hands when Bob was our president, and just he was just a leader among leaders, and, and uh, married a, Lori, and they were just, uh, they're just a beautiful couple that love God, pastored for many years in Illinois. And uh, that's way up north. Y'all know that's way up north. Uh, anything uh, north of I-10 is way up north. We were we were fishing one day in the bayou, one of our friends, and, and uh, born and raised in Thibodeau, and somebody pulled up next to us in the in the bayou, and they were talking with a country accent, you know, kind of like way up here, I guess. But but uh, and they said he's not from down here. He said he he's probably from uh, way up north around Baton Rouge, <laughs> you know. So, but uh. It, way up north, Illinois, and, and uh, you're, you're in good hands this morning. Pastor Ron loves you, and he leaves you in good hands with a, an amazing preacher, an amazing man of God, Brother Bob Eby. So give your give your guest preacher a welcome this morning. Amen. Well, we had wonderful times at Central Bible College with uh, with all of our classmates there, and, and uh, Danny and his brother uh, Jimmy. Uh, we we have a lot of great memories. And I didn't even know I was from the North until I came to CBC. Uh, I'll, I, my first roommate was from Arkansas, and I just thought we were all the same. They disabused me of that notion. First time in my life. I grew up in northern Indiana, and it was the first time in my life I was called a Yankee. I didn't know that we still used that. And uh, so uh, I thought this was the deep south when I came to Springfield, Missouri. Uh, I have since learned that even Springfield is part of the north, evidently. So uh, God is good, and he loves all of us. Amen. It's an amazing thing that he can still love people in Louisiana. How good is that? Amen. Well, the Lord is good. Uh, I met your pastor for the very first time while I was a student at Central Bible College. My wife and I, we had just gotten married the summer before, and it was a spring break trip. And we traveled to Honduras, and we were there with missionaries and a, a team of uh, students. In fact, there's a, I looked at, one of my favorite things to do when I go to a new church to preach is I always look at the missions wall. Uh, because I think the, the health of a church is very much connected to their partnership in the task of global missions. And so I love to see the missions wall, and I love to see how many of the missionaries I know. And you support a missionary family, the Clements. They were on that trip with us, uh, Darren and Diane. They still serve in the Philippines today. And uh, we were on that trip together with them. 
And I remember that trip, there was this kind of oddball that just showed up. He just wasn't a part of our team. He wasn't from Central Bible College. And he just was there. And he was just this random pastor from a town in northern Louisiana who knew the missionary and just happened to be down there with us. And during our week in uh, Honduras, I built just a wonderful friendship with Pastor Ron. In fact, uh, he had us come uh, as a team to their church in Louisiana, Louisiana after we got back, and, and he invited me to preach, and so I had the opportunity to preach one other time for Pastor Ron, and it tells me a little bit of his confidence in me that he decided to make sure that he wasn't present the second time I preached for him. He decided he'd heard enough, and uh, but the Lord is good, and uh, we have been here in Springfield now for about two years, uh, just a little over two years, serving at the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary, teaching in the areas of biblical studies and preaching, which I don't normally like to tell that before I preach because it just raises expectations unnecessarily. So lower your expectations and uh, uh, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 27. We're going we're gonna to take a few minutes to get to our text today, if you don't mind, if you'll give me that grace. But let's Take a moment and just invite the presence of the Lord to be a part of our gathering. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have called us to this moment. And so very clearly, you have once again directed my heart. And I just believe you want to speak to somebody here today. That it's no accident that you've put us together in this moment. And I pray that you would speak clearly through me. Most importantly, may your words speak clearly today. And may hearts be prepared to receive what you have to say today. And may you meet us on this occasion, this Sunday morning. In Jesus' name. that unmistakable sound. And that's what stands out to me more than anything else is, is the sound. For 24 years, I served as a pastor in Illinois, and one of the responsibilities that fell to me through those decades was oftentimes I would be called and summoned at a crisis moment in a family. And I would drop everything and I'd make my way to the local hospital. I'd wind my way through the hallways to find the rooms. And I found some of the most pivotal and critical ministry of my life took place in places like intensive care units, and emergency rooms, where in a moment families and lives were turned upside down, unexpected moments so oftentimes where things were just going on, life was just happening, and then suddenly everything changed. And the family found themselves at a moment of uncertainty and questions, doubts and fears. And it was the noise of the ER and the noise of the ICU that I always always took notice of the beeping of monitors. Monitors that I have no idea what they're monitoring, but they just go on and on. 
in those supremely critical moments, you would hear the whir of the ventilator, breathing for the patient, and kind of the hushed tones of the medical team urgently working around that bedside. I don't know how many times, really too many to count, I was summoned into those moments. And I considered it a privilege and a distinct honor to come as an ambassador of the Lord into the worst moments of a family, to come with the presence and the power of Christ, to be his ambassador there. And I remember so many times standing by the bedside looking down and seeing the questions in the eyes of the patient. Sometimes uncertainty and fear looking for hope and answer, some some clarity in the midst of all of the chaos. I, I, I remember taking hands and going to the throne, asking the Lord to intervene. So many times. For two and a half years now, I've been out of the pastorate, and it's just a different experience. I don't get those calls anymore. I'm not called and summoned into those places with the regularity that I once lived my life, waiting for the phone to call and to ring. Two and a half years, in fact, was the last time, or or excuse me, about a year and a half ago, was the last time I got summoned into an ICU room. And I was there as the patient opened his eyes for the very first time and looked around the room. What was unusual about this particular occasion, the sounds, the smells, the urgency, the questions, the doubts, the fears even, all of those things were very typical and very much a part of the experience I had lived for more than two decades. But the thing that was different this time was that when the patient opened his eyes and looked for answers, I wasn't the eyes... Mine weren't the eyes looking down at the patient. Mine were the eyes looking up from the bed. At 47 years old, I have, at that point, had lived my life avoiding any major catastrophes, any major health crises. But as I opened my eyes that Thursday morning, July 29th, 2021, that part of my life had ended. (laughs) See, it was the night before. It was a Wednesday night. I'd come home from church. We had brought our son who was in the youth group, and we'd gotten home, and I had set it as a goal. I was going to run a 10K, and and I was uh, losing weight, and things were going well. I'd been kind of training. I was on a a training plan to to run that 10K, and, and I'd missed my morning run. Life had been busy and all of the obligations that surround life. And I, I, very, I was very close that Wednesday night to just saying, you know what, I'll just pick it up tomorrow. I'd been running every morning. I'd go out early in the morning and I'd run around the neighborhood where we live on the south side of town. And, and I came home that night. It was about 9 o'clock. And I thought, well, I was supposed to do a timed run. Just run for 30 minutes. It didn't matter how far I ran. I just was supposed to run 30 minutes. I won't tell you how far I ran. It's kind of embarrassing. So 
But I got on the treadmill. I decided, oh, I won't go outside and run. I'll just hit the treadmill. Went downstairs and ran for 30 minutes on the treadmill and pushed it pretty hard. Came upstairs. Our youngest son, who at the time was 16 years old, was sitting on the corner of the couch watching TV. He is never watching TV at 9.30 at night. He doesn't watch much TV. He's not a TV guy, but he was. He was just sitting there on the couch. And I came up and I sat down. Well, not entirely, just came up and sat down. Because if you're going to run, you might as well reward yourself. And so I got a popsicle out of the freezer. And I sat down on the couch. And I was just sitting there for a minute or two at the most. I'd taken maybe a bite or two out of that popsicle. With no symptoms, no warning, no indications, my vision just shrunk down like one of those old black and white televisions I remember as a kid that would occasionally, when you turn them off, would kind of zero down into a singular, sharp, bright point. And my vision did that. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, you're going to pass out. I made a noise. I thought I, I thought my, the noise I made was something like, whoa, because I, I suddenly got very light and was going to pass out. I was informed later that wasn't the noise. I've never clarified exactly what noise I made, but all I know is what I thought me passing out was something far more serious because it was 10 hours later I woke up in the ICU on a ventilator with my hands restrained to the bed, looking around, wondering how I had gotten there, what had happened, and what was going on. There was an entire medical team surrounding me, and I caught the eye of one of the nurses. And she just said this to me. She just said, we're taking care of you. I had no idea it was the next day. I had no idea it was 10 o'clock or approaching 10 o'clock the next morning. Excuse me, it was about 7.30. It was approaching 8 o'clock. I had no idea. My wife came in about 15 minutes after I regained consciousness and took my hand and looked in my eyes, and she said, You had a heart attack. And Tyler saved your life. Tyler is our middle son who had three days before I had driven to Chicago, picked him up and brought him home. He was in his bedroom when I passed out or when I had the heart attack because my heart attack wasn't just a heart attack. It was an instantaneous cardiac arrest. My odds of survival when... Those kind of things happen. At that moment, my odds of survival were 6%. I coded four more times that night. In fact, when they got me to the hospital, I had coded one more time in the ambulance. And so the doctor told me that they actually brought me into the hospital DOA. My odds of survival after coding four separate times. See, what we found out that morning on that Thursday, they took me in for an angiogram and did a heart cath, and they discovered that I had one artery that was 100% blocked, another that was 90% blocked, and two more that were 80% blocked. At 47 years old, I had the, I had the heart and cardiovascular system of a 90-year-old. In fact, you wouldn't want that as a 90-year-old. That one that was 90% blocked had another blockage just a little lower down that was 70% blocked called the left anterior descending artery, but it has a, a more common nickname. It's called the, the widow maker. And that's where my heart attack took place. 
instantaneous cardiac arrest. As I began to sort out what all was happening, well, a few days later, they did quadruple bypass. And I'm here. I asked the question, and maybe you've been in moments like this in your life. I asked the question, why am I here? See, my father, 20 years before, had gone into a cardiac arrest, and they did CPR like my son did on me for about the same amount of time, and my father never regained consciousness. He was in the hospital up at the Mayo Clinic when it happened. There was heart surgeons right on the floor that immediately began to treat him. And he never regained consciousness. Too much brain damage was done. and He went to be with Jesus. And I remember sitting there thinking, why am I here? Why am I still alive? How did I survive this episode? And Why did the Lord not take me to be with him? And I'm not the first one to ask that question. I'm not the first one to walk through a crisis, a trial, an uncertainty, a challenge that at the end of it looks back and goes, why am I still here? What is this to be about? In fact, strangely enough, I feel I'm in pretty good company with that question because I think the Apostle Paul asked that question a few times in his life. And as I laid there in that hospital bed with a ventilation tube down my throat into my lungs, this moment of clarity came, and it brought me to the book of Acts, chapter 27. See, I'm thankful for a lifetime of growing up around the things of the Lord and ministries like Bible Quiz and Royal Rangers in my life that taught me to study God's Word. For there in that moment when I had no opportunity to pick up a scripture, when I had no opportunity to hold a Bible in my hand, God's Word was in my heart, and He took me by the Spirit of God. He took me while there's a tube down my throat to Acts chapter 27. Moments where the Apostle Paul no doubt was wrestling with the question, why am I still here? began to bring comfort and clarity to me why I made it through that night. So if I can take a moment and set up before we come to our passage the scene that brings Paul to this moment in Acts chapter 27. See, it had preceded this moment by about two and a half years. Paul was in the city of Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. And as part of his visit to Jerusalem, he was encouraged by the church, go on up to the temple. Paul goes up to the temple. And when he walks into the temple courts, people recognized him as the preacher, preaching the way, preaching Jesus as Messiah the one who was the preacher to the Gentiles. And that was the problem. And when Paul walked into the temple courts, all of a sudden, there was chaos. People began to riot. And the Roman Empire Empire had learned this lesson very well. If revolutions are going to start, they're going to start at the temple. That's an interesting point to think about. If a revolution is going to start, it's going to start where the people of God meet the presence of God. But 
Paul there in the temple courts being pulled apart. Literally, it says that if the Roman soldiers had not intervened, Paul would have literally been pulled into pieces. And in that moment, they took custody of him and took him into a fortress attached to the side of the temple courts. And there overnight, Paul sat as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. And as he sat there wondering while his own kinsmen, the Jewish people, a group, a small group of Jewish leaders, covenanted together with themselves and they said, we won't eat or drink until we kill this man. They thought they had their opportunity in the temple courts. And the Romans had intervened, but they covenanted themselves. We won't, we won't eat or drink until he's dead. And that night, The scripture tells us that Jesus met Paul in that Roman fortress. I can only imagine that Paul, after a a day of being beaten and arrested and dragged into into the fortress and secured there in that fortress, he had to be weary and tired and sore. And in the middle of the night, I can only imagine that Jesus walked up to him and nudged him and said, Paul, Paul. He says this, take. What an amazing word that comes from the lips of Jesus. See, these words, take heart, are uniquely captured in the ministry of Jesus. The the word only shows up seven times in the New Testament. But every time it's used, it's used in reference to Jesus. And it's when Jesus met somebody at maybe the worst moment of their life. And Jesus speaks these words. Here's the good news. The bad news is when Jesus speaks these words, you're probably at the worst moment of your life. But the good news is when Jesus speaks these words, things are about to change. And Jesus said, take heart, Paul, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also, it is necessary that you will bear witness before me in Rome. I mean, what an amazing word from Jesus. Take heart, Paul. I know you're beaten. I know you're bruised. I know you have questions. You're not sure why all of this is going on exactly the way it is, even though the Holy Spirit had been preparing you. The Lord says to him, take heart. It's going to be okay. I'm not done with you, Paul. I'm sending you to Rome to bear witness to my name. You must, and that word of obligation, necessity, you must bear witness. Paul finds himself taken north to the capital of the Roman province in Caesarea, and he's imprisoned there, and two, two and a half years transpire of just waiting. Political machinations and maneuvering, some wanting to kill him, some wanting a bribe, some just uncertain what to do with this crazy preacher. Paul gets to the point of weariness and desperation, and he says, send me to Rome. I'm a Roman citizen. Let the empire, let the emperor determine my fate. Which is a crazy thing. The one who proclaimed justification by faith, the apostle Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, that very preacher has to appeal to history's one, one of history's most infamous unjust rulers, Nero, to get justice. And they pile him onto a ship with his friend Luke, another friend named Aristarchus, 
a centurion to watch over him. And they send him over the 2,000 miles across the Mediterranean to go to the seat of the empire in Rome. Along the way on that journey, a terrible storm arises on the sea. The winds begin to blow and the clouds cover the sky. The storm was so bad that the experienced Mediterranean sailors on this massive Alexandrian grain ship, 300 people on this ship, the sailors who made their living making the journey across the Mediterranean were so violently ill from the rocking of the waves tossing that ship around that it said they they couldn't keep any food down. You know it's bad when the when the sailors can't eat. Day after day after day after day goes by. For two weeks they don't see the sun. They don't see the moon. They don't see the stars. They're so violently ill, they have nothing that they can keep down in their stomachs. And they've gotten so desperate that they began to throw everything they could off of the ship. Trying to lighten their load, trying to keep themselves alive. At one point, they got so desperate that they passed ropes under the boat and tied the boat together because they were afraid that the violence of the waves crashing on that ship were going to literally pull it apart into little tiny pieces. And they were now being driven by the wind. They had no ability to control where they were going, and they were afraid they were going to wreck on the rocks in the shallows. And that's where we pick up our story. Two weeks in, no food. Two weeks in, no sun. Two weeks in. We just read past these things in the scripture and we don't connect to them. Do you understand? These people were certainly going to die. They had no question about it. Two weeks. Can you imagine going two weeks unable to eat food and hold down a meal? Two weeks in the darkness of the sea. And so we come to Acts chapter 27, verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I love the fact that Paul just couldn't help it. He just had to tell him, I told you so. I told you so. Thank you, Paul. Yet now I urge you, listen to the word he uses. I urge you to take. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. 
See, Paul understood the danger he was in because for two and a half years, every moment of his life was at risk of ending. For two and a half years, he stood in jeopardy to step from life into eternity. Paul understood the gravity of the moment. See, he understood what it was to be opposed by forces allied against him, whether it be religious leaders or political leaders. Paul understood what it was to have enemies that wanted him to be silent, that wanted him to go away, and were more than willing to take action to do it, more than willing to kill him. Paul understood what it was to have adversaries pursuing him at every turn who wished nothing more than the end of his ministry, the end of his life. Paul knew it from his kinsmen. He knew it from the Roman Empire, and he knew it from the demons of hell themselves. They wanted to stop him. See, Paul also understood what it was to be a threat from circumstances. There was a talk amongst the centurions and all of the Romans on the ship that were safeguarding the prisoner on his way to Rome. They got together when it looked like the ship might sink. And they had this talk and they said, we should kill him. Because if he, by chance, if this ship sinks and by some miracle he survives, they'll come after us. We should kill him. See, Paul understood enemies, but he also understood circumstances, this storm that everyone was convinced was going to kill them all. Circumstances allied against him to silence the voice of the apostle. And I just wonder, I mean, we, we read these stories of these heroes of Scripture and we forget that they were human beings. Could Paul have been discouraged? I don't know. I know this. In the midst of one of his imprisonments, he wrote a letter to his friends in the church in Philippi, and he said this, it would be better for me to go be with Jesus. I think there are probably even moments in the midst of all of this Paul was ready to go, ready to let go. My own heart's ready to just call it. <laughs> we did what we did. We've done what we've done. We, we went where you told us to go, Lord. We proclaimed your name, and now the church has spread from just a handful of 120 in Jerusalem, and now the gospel has spread to Asia, to Africa, to Europe. The gospel has reached the shores of India. By this moment, the gospel had spread in all of those places, and I have no doubt the apostle Paul said, Lord, I'm ready. Can I just come be with you? This is too much. It's been too many beatings. It's been too many attacks. It's been too many enemies. This storm is too deep. The darkness is too dark. Let me just come be with you, Jesus. Who would have begrudged the apostle's prayer if that had been his prayer? It is a crazy moment when you realize when the thing dawned on me that as my son persisted in doing CPR on me, on his father, trying to save my life, my mother-in-law had moved with us when we moved to Springfield, and she had worked for 20 years in hospitals as a phlebotomist, and she had been in those crisis moments before, and she said to me, she said, Tyler did CPR. He was an all-state wrestler in high school. 
She said, he did CPR longer than I've ever seen any human being do CPR. She said it would have taken, it would have been a rotation of four to five people for the length of time that he did CPR. And he just wouldn't quit. That's what my wife said to me when she took my hand. She said, Tyler saved your life. He did compressions until the paramedics got there. See, that's what she told me. And it made sense to me because I know they train people to do CPR nowadays by by doing compressions only CPR. So many people don't want to do mouth to mouth and they don't do anything. So they just said, what you gain by doing breaths, it'd be better to just do compressions. And so when she said that to me, that made perfect sense to me. And I thought, when did Tyler learn to do CPR? A couple months afterwards, a couple months afterwards, my mother said, it's miraculous that Tyler was there and that Emily, my mother-in-law, was there and that they helped to save your life. I said, what? She said, well, Emily and Tyler worked to save your life until the paramedics got there and they hit me with the defibrillator. I said, well, no, I said, Chloe told me Tyler did compressions. She said, no, Emily was involved. I said, what did what Emily do? She said, well, Emily was doing the breathing. What? Excuse me? Well, yeah. She was doing the mouth-to-mouth while Tyler was doing... I said, what? I'm telling you, friends, it's traumatic to wake up after having died four times and coming back to life. It maybe is only in my life second to finding out my mother-in-law did mouth-to-mouth on me to save my life. Layers of trauma. It's a good thing my wife is a licensed clinical social worker, owns a counseling practice in town. I get all the free therapy on this I can need. See, I realized that there was a moment. My son could have called it. He said, Dad, I've done all I've done. I've done all I can do. It hurts too much. It's too traumatic. I'm too tired. He could have stopped. The paramedics got there, and they hit me with the defibrillator, and my heart sprang back into action. And then it stopped again. And they could have said to my wife, we've done all we can. He's been gone too long. When I got to the hospital and I had no pulse, and I had been without a pulse for too long, the doctors would have been justified in calling and registering the time on my death certificate. See, I don't know in that moment, was my body striving to live? Was my body trying to die? I don't know. Was it my son wouldn't give up? I don't know all of the machinations that were happening in that moment, but I have come to understand this, and I think it's the very same thing the Apostle Paul realized on the dark night in the Mediterranean that doesn't matter what enemies speak against you. It doesn't matter what circumstances align against you. It doesn't matter who wants to silence your voice. It doesn't matter what your own heart says. When God is in control, He alone calls it over your life. 
Only God has the right to say, here, no further. Only God has the right to say, your work is done. You see, you understand that in that Roman fortress attached to the Temple Mount, that Jesus himself said to Paul, there is a divine necessity over your life. You have done many great things in my name. You have been used in miraculous ways, Paul, but I'm not done with you. You're going to go to Rome. You're going to declare my name in the presence of a Roman emperor, and there's no power in this life or the one to come greater than my power. And if I say you're going to go to Rome, you're going to Rome. No one can silence. No one can call it. Nothing can stop it when Jesus says, you must go to Rome. And so this morning, here's what I've learned in the last year and a half. Only Jesus calls it over our life. And as long as you're breathing, as long as as there's breath in your lungs, there remains a divine necessity over your life. There's still a person to whom you need to show the love of Christ. There's still a family member that needs to hear your prayers on their behalf. There's still a work that needs to be done in the service of the kingdom. There's still a task to be accomplished through your witness, your life, your testimony, because only Jesus gets to say when you're done. And you're here. You're not done. Whether it be adversaries aligned against you, circumstances, illness, sickness, or finances that just don't seem to want to work, or even today, if you're weary in your own heart, enemies don't get to call it over your life. Circumstances don't get to call it over your life. Your own weariness. It's not that Jesus doesn't care. He does care. But in his care for you, your weariness today doesn't get to call it over your own life. Because there was a day when you knelt at the foot of the cross. And in that day, it is no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. It is Christ alone who calls it over your life. And if you're weary here today, I bring a word of encouragement that he stands beside you in the dark night of your soul. He sends an angel of the Lord to come remind you today. He kept me alive so I could stand in this pulpit to tell you today, if Jesus has still put breath in your lungs, you still have a work to do. You still have a calling to live out. You still have a divine must over your life. if I may just bring it to a moment of conclusion. See, in those 10 hours from when I lost consciousness on my couch till I regained it in an ICU at Coxall, I had two moments of absolute clarity and awareness. The second one was the voice of my wife. Far off in a distance, I heard her say this to me. You're going to make it. You're going to be okay. I asked her afterwards, I said, did you say that to me? She said, I did. 
I said, when did you say that to me? She said, it was after they got your heart stabilized for the last time, and it kept beating in the emergency room at Coxall. And they let me in the room, and I just, she said, I took your hand, and I just said, you're going to gonna make it. There was a moment before that. You say, why did I hear? I didn't hear anything. There was such chaos, as you can imagine, in my home that night. I love the fact that their first thought was I was choking on the popsicle. And they grabbed me and were trying to do the Heimlich on me. To which I went, guys, I understand it was traumatic. But if it was a popsicle, it would have melted. I mean, they're beating on me, jumping on me, whatever. And the chaos, as you can imagine, it was far worse for them than it was for me. And I heard none of it. But I believe God gave me that moment where I heard my wife at an objective, clear moment, a point in time, because he wanted me to know my brain was working. For the first occasion that preceded what I heard her say over me. Because I found myself struggling And within a matter of seconds, I realized I was dying. It was unmistakable. It was clear. And there was no ambiguity. I knew I was dying. I'm a, I'm a university professor, right? Plagiarism is a bad thing to do in a university setting. And in a moment of great trauma, I plagiarized somebody else's prayer. I ripped Jesus off, and I just said, Lord, into your hands, I commit my spirit. That's all I could think to pray. And I uttered those words, Lord, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Quicker than instant. Jesus came up behind me. I was standing at the edge of darkness, and he came up behind me, and he held me up with an embrace from behind. He spoke peace. And in that moment, the sensation of dying did not leave. I still had the feeling, but all struggle stopped. And peace greater than words flooded my being. And I knew I was going to die. And I knew I was going to go be with Jesus. And in that moment, I tell you with all of my heart, I was okay. I said many things in this sermon, but I tell you that because some of you have wondered about your loved ones that went to be with Jesus. I believe one of the reasons I'm here is to tell you he needs us. And your loved ones knew peace in his presence. He spoke peace and the struggle ended and I was confident that I was going to be in the next moment in his presence. And that scene closed. And then I woke up ten hours later. 
I asked the Lord in the aftermath. I said, Lord, why did I not see your face? You were there. I felt your arms. I, I experienced it. I heard that sense of peace. I experienced supernatural peace. And you did a miracle. The doctors told my wife, if your husband survives, you need to understand cognitively he'll never be okay again. He was gone too long. There will be too much brain damage. He won't be cognitively normal. That was less distressing to my wife than you can imagine because she thought he's never been cognitively normal. So we're going to be okay. And I asked the Lord, why did I not see you? And what I had always anticipated, what I had always thought in those first couple weeks after it happened was that I was standing at the edge of life to pass over into death. What I've come to personally believe, as I feel like the Lord has spoken to my heart, is that he had turned me around. And that line was not life going into death. It was death going back to life. And he met me, held me up, turned me around, and ushered me back to my life. And I don't know when he'll be done with me. I live with the daily reality that I may preach one more sermon. I may teach one more class. There may be one more person that the Lord loves enough that he brought me back to say one more thing to them. I think somebody needs to know. No enemy, no circumstance, or not even your own frailty can call it over your life. Only Jesus. And he sent me here. He sent me back to tell you that. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and if the worship team could maybe come. Is there somebody here today that would say, I'm weary, I'm tired. I don't even know why I'm here. Maybe you feel like people are out to get you. Maybe it's the attack of the enemy. Maybe it's somebody you love that's pushed you away and the pain is real and it hurts. Or maybe there's sickness, suffering. Maybe your finances, no matter what you do, it just seems like chaos. And you're just weary. Or maybe you're just here in the dark clouds of depression. Fear have rolled in over your life and closed in around you. And your world has gotten very, very small because of the pain of your own heart. Maybe you just want to give up. I'm here to tell you don't give up. Because if you're still here, there is a divine necessity over your life. And I don't know what it is. But he'll call it when the time is right. And there'll be peace when he calls it. But he hasn't called it over you yet. As I was praying this morning, normally 
almost universally, I always turn when I'm done preaching the service back over to the leadership of the local church to lead the time for prayer. I don't know why. I don't know why. I just felt like the Lord spoke to me that I needed to lead this moment right now. And very specifically, the Lord spoke to me that we need to call people to pray. I'm just telling you, I don't, this is not how I normally end my services as a traveling preacher now. But for whatever reason, God spoke to my heart today. And I'm going to ask everyone in this room to stand. Just stand right where you're at. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask you a question. And then I want you to understand, I'm going to call you to a response. I'm not trying to switch it up on you. Just raise your hand and then we're done and I'm going to pray over you. No, I'm going to ask you to respond and then I'm going to ask you to come. But with every head bowed, is there someone here today that would say, whether it be external attacks, the reality of circumstances in your life, or your own heart's weariness. You're discouraged. You're struggling. You don't have an answer. And I'm not here to embarrass you. I'm not here to make you a public spectacle. I'm here to tell you that there is a God who loves you, that has a plan for your life, and your weariness and your emptiness today is nothing to be ashamed of, but there is hope because He alone has the right to call it. And He brought you here today. Is there someone here today that's saying, I'd like you to pray for me. I want you to slip up your hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. Are there others all around?